Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Every week since we started our study of the book of James, I have mentioned about the incredible practical way that James brings uh, truth to us in, in this letter. It just is a tremendously pra- practical book of the Bible. Now, last Sunday afternoon, uh, we went and got lunch, and then I came back up here and was just doing some things, getting ready for the family meeting uh, last week, and I was kind of reviewing my notes from last week's message, and just felt a prompting from the Lord that I needed to slow my roll a little bit, and I needed to back up and address something in chapter one, and also step into chapter two this week, um, a baby step in, uh, because I had not done an adequate job, because I had talked so much about the practical nature of the book of James, I had not done an adequate job of pointing to the rich theological foundation that James operates out of. And it really is the key that unlocks, that we're going to talk about, it's the key that unlocks the whole power of the book of James so that we don't get lost in just thinking about the doing aspect of it. James is no mere pragmatist. He just, he just isn't. He, he comes at all that he is teaching us with a rich doctrine and deep roots theologically in who his half-brother was, his big brother Jesus was. And the more I thought about it this week, the more astonished I personally was, the more God blessed me uh, in my own personal life uh, about this. And so I, I want to I bring, I want to step back into chapter one a little bit, and um, I want to kind of step into chapter two a little bit today, um, because really I think the, the whole rest of this book really rest on the foundations that we're looking at today. So we're going to jump back to verse 23 uh, in chapter 1 for a moment. You remember we talked at length about James's analogy, and starting in verse 23, of God's Word being like a mirror. And we talked at length about the difference between gazing and glancing. I'm not going to rehash that with you. We said that a mirror, a real mirror, just kind of shows us who we are and what's going on in our world and how God's word, James says, is like, is like a mirror. And then he, he talks about that in verse 23. He says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it is is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Now, I want to unpack some of that with some of what we're going to look at in, in chapter 2 in just a moment. But this is kind of a critical foundation on which this letter is built. And what James, I think, is telling us here in those verses is, is, is something powerful that the Bible, the whole of the Bible tells us. And it's simply this, that the Bible tells you, you know, before it tells you what you do, it shows you who you are. Before God's word calls you to do something, it shows you who you are. It tells you the truth about who you are in Christ. In fact, if you come to God's word only in a doing mindset, you're going to get wrecked. If you try to just do it, you're going to get wrecked. Now, does the Bible have tremendous list of noble, beautiful things to do? Absolutely. Things like 
living with integrity, yes, it shows us how. Having a life of compassion, yes. Living from a, a point of justice. These guys have been studying Micah 6-8 all weekend. They've been focused and thinking about those kinds of things. And yes, we need to do all of those. But those flow from something much deeper. And so I want us to kind of pause for a minute and look at that because James is absolutely brilliant here. James is, James is saying you can't just look at this as a rule book. You can't just look at the rules and then walk away. No, 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 no. You've got to look at life in the kingdom of God, not as a matter of just willpower where you can will yourself to do it. It's not just, it's not just a Nike commercial, just do it. It's not just, you know, say yes or just say no. He says the Bible's a mirror. And before it tells you what to do, it shows you who you are. It shows you your condition. And James says, if you want this kind of life that I'm going to write about here, if you want to live that kind of life, you've got to con continuously, over and over again, connect with who you are. You've got to remember who you are, and only then would you be able to do what God's Word calls us to do. Now, the book of James is actually calling the followers of Christ calling us in our day to live a totally countercultural lifestyle. But James knows that the only way to do that is to be captured by our identity. And so here's the truth. Only a radical new identity is ever going to be able to bring about a radical new lifestyle. Only being rooted in the truth about who God says we are will give us the capacity to transform, to live the kind of life that James is going to point out all throughout his letter. And that's why I felt like we had to go back and press into this today. James is saying, if you, if you say, you know, I went and I looked at the Bible and it, it said I should forgive and I tried but I can't. Or I looked at the Bible and it said, don't be afraid, uh, be a courageous person instead, and I tried but, but I can't. So what do I do? Well, our flesh tells us what we got to do is try harder. Just, just try harder. You know, that's kind of always the, 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 the fleshly means by which trying to accomplish something. And oftentimes, some well-meaning people teach us that. But here's what happens if that's your mode of operation in the Christian life for, let's say, let's say 20 years, that you just live this life of trying harder and failing, trying harder and failing, trying harder and failing. Here, here's, here's one of two things that's going to happen. One thing that may happen is that a pastor or a Christian counselor or a, a dear friend in Christ is going to have to pick you up out of the train wreck of your life because you're going to be a hot spiritual mess. That's what you're going to end up as. That or the second is you're going to walk away. You're going to walk away from the faith altogether like so many have done, you know, now saying, I don't want anything to do with that old organized religion stuff. One, one, those are the two pathways of people who just approach God's word with a try-hard mentality. It has actually given birth to the, the fastest growing uh, faith group in our, in our country. You know what they're called? The nuns. You know why they're called the nuns? Because they say they have no faith. They make up, last I read was about 28% of our population and, and still growing. Nowhere did Jesus, nowhere does the Bible teach that the way you come at following life in Christ is just simply by trying harder, you know, and then when you can't do it, feeling guilty and blaming yourself and then just trying harder or, or giving up. That's not what the Bible says we're supposed to do. That is not what James advocates for. 
You know, James is coming and saying, okay, if you can't be courageous, if you can't be forgiving, if you're having trouble, trouble with honesty, if you're having trouble being self-controlled or being kind to people, it's because you have forgotten who you are. You went and you just kind of glanced at God's word. You didn't really study it because it shows you who you are. See, in, in Christianity, we'll use, we'll use James's phrase, in true religion, as James puts it, being always precedes doing. Being comes before doing. And that's really not the normal way we think of things, you know. We think, I, I want to be a Christian. I want to I do the Christian thing, you know. And that normally means I'm just going to try harder. So people begin thinking that Christianity is mostly about doing stuff. About, you know, doing something that leads to being. And James says, no, 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 no. It's the other way around. You know, when I have conversations with people sometimes about their spiritual life, I'll ask them, you know, do you consider yourself to be a Christian? And if they say something like, well, I hope so. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying really hard. These are people that are convinced that the Christian faith is about doing that will lead you to some believing. If I do enough Christian things, then I'll become a Christian. And James is saying, no, 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 no. And here's what's really beautiful and amazing. You know, when you look at it in the Bible, uh, the Bible in both the Old Testament and, and the New Testament, they'll, they'll flavor it a little differently. But basically, they're going to tell you the same thing. They're, go they're going to point you to the gospel. They're going to point you to the truth about yourself and the truth about yourself in Christ. Here's what the gospel message really is. On your own, you're radically fallen. You're as far away from God as you could get on your own. But in Christ, you are infinitely exalted. In Jesus, your life is going to be infinitely exalted in, in Christ. See, the Bible tells us we're so very sinful and that we're too weak to deal with it on our own. And nothing less than the exchange of the life of the Son of God for, for, for us, his death, nothing less than that could save us. So he came. And, and, and he died. And that's what the whole Old Testament sacrificial system was about, pointing ahead to that. That something, somebody had to die to pay for what I've done, what you've done through our sin. And so on one hand, the Bible says, you are, you're just radically fallen. We're radically fallen. Which, which means... You can't become Christian simply by doing something about it. we got to see that. There's nothing we can do to make us more Christian. You can't become Christian by trying hard because we're so radically falling. And nothing less than Jesus' coming and his death could, could change that. And so he, he came. And he fulfilled every commandment and, and all of the law perfectly. And he died in your place and mine. And because of that... That sacrifice, if I will receive and accept that, I can be infinitely exalted in him. I want you to look at the way some scripture talks about it. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes, he says, This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead, seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. But that's not all. You go down into, into chapter 2, Paul continues this thought. He says, For he raised us from the dead along with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. That means logically, it means virtually, it means literally, it means, it means legally. It, what, what that literally means is this. Some of you right now think you're seated, you know, on my right, and some of you think you're seated on my left, but you're not if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, God's word says you're seated in the heavenly realms. That's where your life is. It is, it is with him. You've been, you've been 
called by him. You've been anointed by him, welcomed by him, adopted by him, and the Bible says seek with him. When you look into the Bible, it, it will tell you that if you desire to live a life in Christ, that you have got to see the radical new identity that God has given you. You've got, to see, you've got to see how fallen you are, but you also have to see how being in Christ infinitely exalts you. So that when you feel that you're not able to live the lifestyle the Bible calls you to, James insists that it's because you have forgotten. You, have for, you looked at it, you glanced at it, but you have forgotten who it says you are. You've forgotten, yeah, how, how sinful you are, but you've also have forgotten that in Christ, how exalted, how great you are in Christ, and both of those things at once. We've got to keep those things before us because it's amazing. The gospel is amazing. And James has given us this great foundation of wisdom from which he's going to launch all of his teaching to us. James is showing us that the gospel is the key to unlocking any pursuit of living the Christian life. And so in verse 27, James kind of lays out uh, something very interesting in one verse. In verse 27, he kind of he goes after something that he's going to spend the rest of his letter unpacking. In verse 27, he says, Religion that God uh, our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, here's what I want you to notice in that verse. He's, he nails, he hammers liberal Christians and conservative Christians. One verse. Don't you wish I could do things that quickly? You know, he just, he, he nails both liberal Christians and conservative Christians in, in one verse. He points out the weaknesses in both pathways. You know, liberal Christianity has a tendency to focus primarily on social causes, Social morality, if you would. Um, conservative Christianity focuses mostly on personal morality, personal holiness, if you would. And so you'll hear kind of liberal Christian, you know, segments talk about, well, you know what? What's important is that we use our power and our resources, you know, how, how we use those. But your personal life, you know, your, your, your sexuality and all, you just kind of do what you want to do there, you know? It's the other thing that's most important. Just fulfill yourself. Conservative Christianity kind of goes the other way. They say that the important thing to do is keep yourself pure and, and chaste in life. But, you know, things like your money, it's your money. Spend, spend it on however you want to. Just kind of, kind of do what you want to. And James comes and says, no, 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 no. It, it's a both and deal. It's a life of holiness and a life of compassion. It's a life of justice and a life of purity. It has flavors of what Paul wrote to the church at Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6. Friends, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. It's a both-and deal, declaring that every part of you belongs to God. J James is saying, I want you to know the freedom that comes from looking at the perfect law of God, the perfect truth of God, the perfect wisdom of God, and then seeing who you are out of that and living in union with it, living your life from it. And then James steps into chapter 2, and he goes ahead and he shows us what, uh, what a socially moral life, what, what Christianity needs to do in the social sphere. But then in chapters 3 through 5, he talks about personal holiness, and we've got we've to walk both of those, and we're going to. Now, 
even though James is going to tell us what to do in no uncertain terms, he never tells you just what to do without pointing back to the power that it comes from, that you are in Christ, and that what you do is because of who you are. So I want us to take just a couple of minutes, take some baby steps into chapter 2, because James quickly gets at one particular type of sin. And he uses it kind of as an illustration, I think. He says, don't do this, but do this. He tells you what to do, but he tells you it's because of who you are. Now, if you have ever served in a church as an usher, or you serve on the greeting team, or the hospitality team, you may not realize this, but there are instructions. There's a, there's a four-verse training, or about a seven-verse training module in, in James chapter 2 for anybody who's a greeter. Now, those of you who attend River Bluff or are members of River Bluff know that I have already ordained you all as greeters. You know, we've talked about this before. If you come here, you're a greeter. And you better be greeting people well. Well, James has instructions for all of us here. So if you've got your Bibles, look at James chapter 2. We're going to read, right now we're going to read verses 1 through 4. It says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man comes in shabby clothing, also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, ooh, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, ah, you stand over there, or just sit down on the floor, sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is the word of the Lord. Now, James is, he's showing us something definitely about greeting people here, but he's showing us, first of all, you know, here's something you can do. Two people, two different people come into church, and really the, the Greek language is kind of comical here. Um, if you go back and read the, the, the literal Greek, he says the first person that comes in is somebody who's golden-fingered. Now, he's not talking about the James Bond movie. Um, but this, I mean, literally, that's the way that word translated. This guy comes in, he's golden-fingered, which literally means that this man's coming in, showing his importance by what? His rings. His, the gold on his fingers. His, that he's showing his importance that way. He's a man of importance, of, of weightiness, of power, of, of influence. And it, it shows up in, you know, in, in the way he is displayed, in his, in his rings and his clothes. And then it tells us another man comes in. And he is a man of less importance on the cultural scale, and it shows up in his clothing as well. And so they come in, and they, they have these different levels of importance in society. And James, James says, what happens, what happens if you discriminate? He says, don't show favoritism. He says, this is a terrible thing. Now, one of the other interesting points here in James chapter 2, verse 1, is the word that gets translated as partiality or favoritism that, that in most English translations translated singularly is actually a plural word. It, it actually is, is, is plural in nature. And so it's more about partialities or favoritisms is the way it would actually, actually read. And James says, even though I'm pointing out this one cause, I'm pointing to this one thing about, you know, kind of power and, and wealth, we need to be careful in dealing with all kinds of partiality, all kinds of, of favoritism. It's plural. They're all wrong. All of them. And so the issue in some churches may not be about money or some people's lives. It may be about the color of skin. 
where one race is, you know, majority race is given more preference or clout over another minority race. Or it may be a, a cultural thing where, you know, the, the cool, the hip, the connected are given more, you know, space in your life than those who are not so much, those who may be outcast and, and disconnected. Or maybe it's a generational thing where, you know, the young are valued more than the elderly. James says all of it, all partialities, all, all of these are, are wrong. They're, they're sin. He says it's discrimination. Watch out for it. He, he's pointing it out. Now, I don't think there's ever been, a, a, let's say, a 50-year period in history where there have been greater efforts to root out and eliminate institutional prejudices and partialities through the use of laws and regulations. And all those, I think all those efforts need to continue. I think they, need, they must continue. But here's the deal. It's not stopping it. It's not getting rid of it. Why? Because all those things work on is the doing. That's all those things work on. All, all they work on is the doing. And James is saying, no, 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 no. What, what you do flows from who you are. It flows from your heart. So, you know, he doesn't just say, stop doing it. He, he points to something greater. He gets at the, the why and, and the how. But you've got to dive just a little deeper to look at that. Look again at, at verse 1. And again, remember that James is written in, in kind of the Greek and in the Greek language. Um, verb and noun order is kind of a little backwards. And so if you're just reading it word for word, translating it, it feels goofy to us. But interestingly, sometimes it makes a big difference. Here's, a, here's the interlinear translation um, that I went to, and it just literally translates to Greek word for word. This is what it says in James chapter 2, verse 1. Brothers of me, not with partialities, have the faith of the word of us, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's kind of a direct translation. Now, in, in some of our English translations, it, it kind of, the emphasis, I think, gets a little bit lost. I love the NIV translation. I think it's great reading, and it, it, it opens the scriptures to my mind. But in, in this particular verse, I think it puts the emphasis in the wrong place. Listen to it in James 2, verse 1 from NIV. It says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, don't show favoritism. And that's what it, it makes it feel like the emphasis is on is don't show favoritism. Translating it that way kind of gives an emphasis to the doing part. And in this time, I think the ESV really gets it, nails it here. Look at the ESV's translation. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I think the focus there is on the being, not the doing. And I want us to just camp for a little bit in our time that's left on this word glory. Because it is, it's astonishing, it's amazing that James... Uh, who was a Christian leader of the church in Jerusalem. He, he was enormously respected that he would focus on this word this way because to the Jews, the glory of God was a really big deal. Um, there was a historian named Josephus. Some of you are familiar with his writings. Well, one of the people he specifically wrote about was James, Jesus' half-brother. And he wrote about he was very respected among um, other Jews. And he was so respected that when, you know that Jerusalem got destroyed in AD 70. Well, a few years before that, James had been martyred for his faith. 
And there were people after Jerusalem was destroyed who believed that the wrath of God came on Jerusalem because they killed James. And so Josephus picked up on, you know, that thought and, and actually wrote about this. Now, this James, this devout Jew, passionate believer in the Old Testament, honored the Old Testament. He's writing now, and he uses this phrase, the glory of God, and he talks about his half-brother, Jesus, in the context of that. It's a big deal. The, the word in the Hebrew uh, that we get the word glory from is the word kabod, and it means a weightiness. It means uh, a heaviness. It, it means a, an importance. And so when James is talking about you know, this illustration he uses about the rich man coming in your church, he's talking about this guy displaying his glory, his, his importance. And, you know, how oftentimes we marvel at that. And he's, he's saying the rich man's showing forth his glory, and the poor man is showing forth his, his lack of glory comparatively. Do you remember in the Old Testament how God displayed his glory? Do you remember the Shekinah glory in that great cloud over the people of God that led them in the desert, you know, through, through the wilderness. Friends, if there is a God, and there is, and if he was the creator of all things, which he was, then wouldn't you imagine his glory would be the greatest glory ever? I mean, it just kind of stands to reason that that would be true, that he'd be far more important and glorious than any, any of the wealthiest men or women on, on the world. And, and we're told that God appeared in his glory. It wasn't golden-fingered, you know. It wasn't his ring or his, his clothes. It was this Shekinah glory cloud. And it's, you know, scattered throughout the Old Testament, this transcendent glory of God. And in Exodus, uh, we see some details about this, this great cloud that it was incredibly bright and brilliant, so much so that it looked like this white burning cloud in the, in, in, in the light of daylight. And then at night, it was this brilliant pillar of fire. And it was just simply God saying, I'm here. I'm over you. I'm above you. I'm glorious. I'm over all things. And here's the interesting thing about the glory of God. We see it was both desirable but dangerous. The glory of God, if you go to Exodus chapter 33, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses comes to God and says, I want to see your glory. And what does God say? It'll kill you, dude. If I show you all my glory at one time, it will just kill you. It, that, that, that passage shows us both the desire of, of God's glory and the danger of it. See, the glory of God is, is dangerous because he's ultimate. He's infinite. We're finite. He's, he's holy and we're, we're sinful. He's so substantial and comparatively we're, we're hollow. So it means if, if, we, if we get close to the glory of God, it's dangerous. He says it'll kill us because we're sinners and he's perfectly holy. But it's also desirable. Moses wanted to connect with the glory of God. The people wanted to connect more with the glory of God. And here's the truth, and you know this about your own heart, if you will search it. You want some glory. Every human heart longs for glory. We, we want it. You know, the literal place the Bible calls hell is not about pitchforks and fire primarily. That, that place 
is a place that we are most afraid of. We're told that that particular place is a place for those whom God is going to say, I didn't know you. I, I, don't, I don't know who you are. Nobody knows you. You're, 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 you don't know. You're just not known. You're unknown. See, hell is going to be this place where finally and ultimately and utterly and eternally you're going to be completely ignored. You're going to not matter to anyone or anything, and that's one of the things human beings are most afraid of. We all want to matter. We all have something in us that want to make a difference, want to make a dent, want to count for something. But that place known as hell is the place where you're, you're, you're forgotten and gone. You're, you're inconsequential. And there is nothing we fear more than that. And so when Moses comes to God and he says, God, I want to get a glimpse of your glory, the truth is that Moses is pointing out we all hunger for glory. We all, we all want it. We, we all desire it. Friends, it's part of our origin story. You know, back in the garden, when man and woman walked with God, they were in the presence of his glory. We lived in glory, but we lost it. And here James is trying to teach us something astonishing. And again, because he, he's a devout Jew, dealing with the glory of God is a big deal. Because he says, Jesus is the glory of God. How could, how could this be? And, and this, is, this is one of the things that James is teaching us when he says this. In stating the Lord of glory, when he's talking about Jesus, James shows us that Jesus is the way, the only way to truly see God. When he uses that phrase that he is the Lord of glory, he's saying, you want to see God? He's not coming all golden-fingered and splendid clothes. He's coming much different. He, he's coming in, in glory. That's Shekinah glory. And friends, in the Old Testament, that was very, very impressive. But you think about it. Do, do you want to know the ultimate wisdom of God? Well, read the Gospels. Read the teachings of Jesus. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Look at Jesus. You want to you know something of the love of God? You look at Jesus on Calvary. You'll see the ultimate love of God. And if you want to know something about the glory of God, you got to look at Jesus. you got to look at Jesus. And it'll give you a longing. Yesterday, no, Friday, Kathy and I went to the theater and we, uh, we watched the first three episodes of the new season of The Chosen. I'm not going to spoil it. But I will say this. It makes me long for Jesus, to long for that kind of connection, to long to be close to his glory. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 in the Amplified Translation says this, speaking of Jesus, he is the sole expression, he is the only expression that is left of the glory of God. He is the perfect imprint, the very image of God's nature. Friends, if you long for an experience bigger than you, if you long for a love greater than you've ever known, if you love, long for a glory more magnificent than you ha have ever seen, James is saying, it's in Jesus. Look, look, at, look at Jesus. 
James, James came to understand this, that his big brother was the Shekinah glory of God. Now, if you want a significant testimony that Jesus is who he is, you think about that for a moment. That James, who grew up with Jesus, who ate around the supper table with Jesus, they probably threw peas at each other, you know, who, who, who took baths together, you know, he watched Jesus, you know, deal with his parents, submit to his parents, and James is able to testify he is the only glory of God. He's the glory of God. He comes to see his brother as this perfectly moral, perfectly holy person. Friends, you need a testimony to help you see who Jesus is? Ask his baby brother. He'll tell you it's the glory of God. And see, James knew this. And so James is wanting us to see it, to see God in Jesus. But that's not all about the glory of God. Because James also knows when he states that he's the Lord of glory, James also shows us that Jesus brings us into God's glory. That he brings God's glory to us. How did he do it? How did Jesus do that? Well, the scriptures tell us this. The, the scriptures tell us in 2 Corinthians 8 that Jesus was rich. He was rich in God's glory, but he became poor that we by his poverty, could become rich. And what that means is that we could, by his cleansing, by his pardon, by his sacrifice, what he paid for, that we could receive his glory, that his glory can come in. Now, here's the thing about the ultimate glory in, in all of the universe. Jesus gave it up for you. Jesus walked away from it. He left it in heaven for you. Jesus had the glory of all creation, but he gave it up for you so that you could have it. This is what the scriptures say. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, for God is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, that means the experience, of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The glory of God existed in the face of Jesus. There's never been a greater glory than that that existed in Jesus. So why does Jesus... Uh, pray on the night before his crucifixion in John chapter 17 verse 5 he prays this prayer now father give me back the glory that I had with you before the world was created Jesus is saying God I, I need that glory back I want that glory back why do you need to pray that because he had given it up for you he had emptied himself why so that we could have his glory that we could share in his glory, that we could have his presence and his life in us forever. Because if you jump down to verse 22 in that high priestly prayer of Jesus of chapter 17, he says this, he's still praying to his father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I want to ask you a really weird question for a minute, okay? And I want you to answer it. You don't have to answer it out loud. You can if you want to. But I want you to answer just a weird question for a moment. What do you think has, and there's a correct answer. What do you think has greater glory? A mountain or a mosquito? It's not a trick question either. Mountain or a mosquito? Well, a mountain. A mountain is more glorious. It's going to last longer than a mosquito. It's much more valuable than a mosquito. 
Now, here's another question. Now, sound a little strange. What's more glorious, a mountain or you? Which one's more glorious, a mountain or you? This one ultimately depends on what you ultimately believe. See, if you believe this life is all there is, if you believe, yeah, no, I don't know so much about this God thing, if you believe the natural order is the only thing that exists, natural causes, if that's you, then a mountain is more glorious than you. Because you and a mountain are both, you know, a pile of chemicals, if that's your worldview. That's all you are, a pile of chemicals. And since a mountain's bigger than you, it's got more chemicals, it's, it's worth more. And the mountain's going to last longer than you are. But if you follow that worldview to its end, neither one of you have any glory. Because ultimately, it will all be meaningless. It won't matter whatsoever at all. You know? But if Jesus is who he said he is, and he is, and if he came to earth to do what he said he came to do, to give of his glory so you could have it, then you'd realize that compared to you, a mountain is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because you'll last forever. You're going to count for all eternity. That's why the, the scriptures so often declare things like Psalm 103 does. It says human life is short-lived as grass. But, but, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's mercy is on those who fear. From everlasting to everlasting, your life in Christ all the stars in the heavenly realm do not compare to your glory in Jesus. The mountains do not compare. See, James is saying this should be the, 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 the lighthouse of our lives. This, everything is built on this. We've got to know this. When we come to look at the mirror of God's word, we got to see that Jesus has shared his glory. we got to know that he is he's the glory of the Lord and he has shared it with us. Because if you will, James is saying, this partiality stuff, this prejudice stuff, it'll have no space in your life. Because you know the glory of God. And because of that, you'll never be dazzled by the junk of this world. It, it'll look meaningless compared to the real glory that, that is in you forever. The things of this world will no longer impress you. And not only that, you will be happy to sit down with someone who is of lower worldly status than you. You'll be happy to talk with people who aren't quite as hip or cool as you are. People from the wrong side of the cultural tracks. You know why? Because in that moment, you will have the teeniest, tiniest little opportunity to be like Jesus. To share the glory that he has given you with somebody else. See, th this is why we can know if, if we're battling partiality or prejudice or, or any of the, th the things that James is going to teach us about. If we're battling those, James says, here's your problem. You forgot who you are. You've got to go back and look in the mirror, and you've got you've to gaze. You've got to see. <coughs> you, you awake now? Did everybody say, bless me? Okay. James chapter 2, verse 4. Sorry, I couldn't suppress that one. Look at this. 
He says, if you're, if you're living in that partiality thing, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And that phrase, you know, you become a judge from evil thinking, what it literally means is false thinking, dumb thinking, stinking thinking. And what it's pointing to is because you have forgotten who you are. You've, you've forgotten who you are. So, if you read the epistle of, John, of, of, of James, you read this letter from James and you think, I want to do that. I don't want to be a person who shows partiality. I want to be set free from that. I want this kind of life with a pure heart. I, I, I long for this thing. When, when you fail at that, James says, go back to the mirror. Go back and gaze at the glory of the Lord because he's given it to you. You have that. You have to believe it. That Jesus, your Lord and Savior, has, is sharing his glory with you. The Apostle Paul, oh my goodness, he, he knew this. A verse that many of you know, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that in all things God works together for good to those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. If you jump down to verse 30, just, just two verses down in verse 30, it tells us that those he called... He justified. And those he justified, he glorified. The glory of the Lord is in you if you have trusted Jesus. It's, it's glory that allows us to, to look and see what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And it causes us to long for it. And we can step into it. Jesus says, you're glorified in him. James is telling us, keep looking at that. Keep looking at that. Keep looking at that. Keep looking. He said, do it continuously. Keep reminding each other. Keep telling each other. When your brother or your sister is, is down and suffering and discouraged, keep, keep pointing out the glory of Jesus living in them. Celebrate that. And then we can start talking about doing. Let's pray. Lord, we, we come in these moments giving thanks to you for that you are a God who would share your glory with us, that you would give it to us, that on the night before your death, you were praying to your Father, telling him that you had given us your glory. Jesus, I, I have to confess, there are so many days I forget that. So many days when I try to live out of my own strength, my own fleshly willpower, and fail. So thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you that you gave it to us to act as this divine mirror out of which we could see your glory, see who we really are in you. Remind us of that and invite us to come back over and over again to sit there, to gaze at your glory and know that it is for us. Lord, we, we come as people who long to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And so bring us back every day, God, to the reality of who we are in you, who you say we are. instead of who the world says, or our flesh, or 
those horrible, wretched tapes that play in our minds over and over again, that who you say you are is all that matters. And maybe, maybe you're here today, and for the very first time, you've heard that's why Jesus came. He came for you. He came to give you purpose. He came to give you his glory. He came to give you a, a, a fulfillment of that great desire to make a difference that fills your heart. And the only pathway to that kind of life that matters for all eternity is Jesus. And he says, if you will call on his name from a heart that confesses that you radically fallen in sin, you've chosen your own way, and now you've realized that his way is the way, that he is the truth and the light, and you come to him and say, Jesus, I want that. I forsake, I put down, I lay aside my pursuits for yours. I see what you were offering, Jesus, and I long for that. I desire that. Jesus says, if you will repent, put down your own longings, your personal desires, and seek him, all these things will be granted unto you. And you can pray that prayer, Jesus, I long for you right now. I want you. I want your ways. I want your kingdom. I repent. I turn away from my own foolish, prideful desires, and I turn to you. The Bible says, you shall be saved. You shall be one of those that we read about a moment ago who has been called and justified and glorified in Christ. You can pray that prayer right now. Jesus. He'll know exactly what you mean. Others of us, most of us in this room, we just need to hear the James Clarion call today. We need to see Jesus as the Lord of glory. And realize that he came to give it to us and that if we truly desire life in the kingdom, if that's the way we want this life on earth to be lived, it will only be lived when we focus more on being who we are and not just on doing. We keep going back, back, back to the truth of who Jesus says we are in him. And so Jesus, we come again to kind of this moment in our service, where, where we long for that. Our hearts cry out that we would have that kind of radical identity that we see you giving to us. And we want to declare one more time. We want to declare it so that the person next to us knows it. We want to declare it so our own, our own hearts know it. We want to declare it so the gates of hell know it, that we are choosing again this day to live by the truth of who you say that we are. And so we come to worship you and give honor to your word that tells us who we are. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. Thank you for giving us your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.